Hello fellow Blue Earthers and welcome to another episode of The Pod. My guest today has many strings to his bow. As well as being a science presenter, he's also a filmmaker, public speaker, educator, adventurer and astronomer. Hugh James has delivered live classroom talks from the Amazon jungle, the glaciers of the high Alps and the slopes of Mount Etna. He's travelled the world talking about science, but from his studio in Wales, we discuss why the communication of science is so important and the work he's doing to educate others on the science of climate change. Hi, Hugh. It's lovely to have you on the podcast today. Pleasure to be here. So you are a science presenter, adventurer, photographer and filmmaker. Have I missed anything? I need to find a better way to explain what I do for a living. But as is the way with well, self-employed people a lot of the time is we do lots and lots of different things. And I honestly believe that, you know, it's the intersection of, of many different disciplines where all the good stuff comes from. So I try and be at least proficient at a few things. I'm good at a couple of things, but I'm not great at anything. And I think that's fine. Yeah, I think that is okay. What's your favorite thing at the moment that you're doing? Oh, that's a good one. I'm outdoors a bit at the moment. I'm I'm enjoying getting out into the, the Alps, doing some mountaineering out there as well. And that kind of is work-wise as well, because I, I, I tell a lot of stories from, from the fields and um, dine into schools from the field and do photography and stuff there. So I'm in this weird place where work and hobbies in, in, in commas are the same thing, really. So I don't get to, I don't have any days off work, but then I also don't work for a living, if that makes sense. That does make sense. I love how you casually just drop that you are, um, you know, living in Wales, but, you know, just popping over to the Alps to do some climbing. Sounds very, <laughs> very exciting. <laughs> Well, I do. I do a bit, bit of work out there. We don't have anything like the Alps here in, um, in the UK. I wish we did. Like closest, I think I'll head up to to Scotland in the in the coming months. There's a, a ridge line up there I really want to do. And obviously, like we've got some lovely hills and mountains here in the UK. But yeah, just that little step up into the Alps is wonderful. You're born and bred in Wales. You didn't kind of grow up in England and then move and just pick up the accent for fun. <laughs> no, but, uh, you know, I, I started over the years, I, I graduated university uh, here in, in Wales and um, started working at TechniQuest, which is the, the science centre here in, in Cardiff. And um, over the, the years, I work a lot in different countries at the moment, and I try and pronounce things better, enunciate a little better. So this is actually is a little bit of a dialed back version of what my accent normally is. People in the valleys, I mean, in Kafili, just north of it, and um, we, it's, a, it's a, a language made of mumbles, and I love it. Uh, so yeah, born and bred in, in, in the valleys in a coal mining town. You know, it's a small little village that I, that I live in, but I get to travel quite a lot, like I said. So it always feels like it's always nice to, to have a home to come back to and all my friends and family are, are there. So yeah, I really love it. So how did you make the transition from studying something so academic to then being able to communicate that in such an easy way? So I was really lucky that actually my astronomy and geology degree wasn't that numbers based at all. We we use a lot of uh, hands-on stuff. We use a lot of telescopes and um, a lot of observing at um, observatories in, in Portugal and Spain and a few others. And it was all based around um, how do we actually physically observe the night sky? And then for geology, how do we physically map geological bedrocks and, uh, and make maps of what's underneath the, the ground? 
love at the time is I wanted to be a planetary geologist. So I, I wanted to look at different planets and work out what was going on underneath the surface. The Earth is a really, really unique place in terms of its geology and we don't see much like it in the rest of our solar system let alone beyond our solar system so i was always fascinated about why the earth is like it is and the other planets aren't so my degree then was a lot of my lecturers at university of south wales were you know i remember writing a paper and the whole basis of it was can you write this for sky at night magazine i think it was sky and telescope magazine so can you write this as if it's public facing? Uh, so no jargon for a public audience. And we just started doing more and more of that. And it was really forward thinking for the for the time. This was many, many years ago, um, probably like 16 years ago, 17 years ago. And we were doing public communication of science as part of our degree. And you still don't find that as part of science degrees, that you're thinking all the time about how would the public perceive this and how can I put my science into a way that's understandable for everyone. So it was a really simple transition, really. After university, I went and worked in, in a in a restaurant because that's all I knew at the time. And then uh, I was lucky to hand my, my CV into TechniQuest and, um, and they have a wonderful planetarium there. So I started doing star tours for, you know, 20 people at a time. Uh, in a, a little dome, working on my my public speaking and how to communicate science. And I'm lucky that it's a, astronomy is a it's a really interesting science, and people are interested in it almost all the time. But it's also really complicated, so you have to work on how you communicate it well and make sure it's understandable for everyone. I try my best to do a lot of quality interactions in in uh, in science communication. So for for like 15 years, I I would do a lot of live events so science festivals outdoor festivals and the, and the likes talking to people about different types of science so kendall mountain festival is one i do almost every year um go back there and we do the science of pain and the science of the outdoors and adventure and on all these different things and the you know the science of endurance that kind of stuff with the school kids there but also with with the adults because adults are really school kids dressed up in adult clothes they all like the same the same things so explosions and freezing stuff and and all that so i did live stuff for a long time so i think it's a really good interaction between because people can see you and and ask you questions and challenge you on things you, they don't think is right and it's it's a really healthy relationship there most of the time but then obviously the quantity isn't there over the last 15 16 years I've added up all the the people that I've spoken to live and it's it's now well over a million in my audiences but you know you can hit that in one YouTube video if you collaborate with the right person so you know doing more stuff online and doing podcasts and the likes is just a new age of of communicating science and nowadays i do i run athlete climate academy with a guy who's kind of well known killian jornet who's probably the best ultra runner in the world and we talk about we, we try and bring the science of climate change to athletes professional and amateur athletes for them them to build the confidence in their education so that they can then talk to their friends and family but also their fans about what's happening in the world just backtracking to you speaking at Kendall, you just said that you talk about the science of pain and then the science of outdoors. So how are those two things linked? Because they're in the same sentence, so I'm assuming that they are linked in some way. We're specifically looking at how people in the outdoors can overcome pain, can endure 
massive uh, expeditions or um, events and things like that so you know how can trail runners run for 24 hours for example how can mountaineers still walk even though their their feet are, are ripped to shreds from blisters and and all the like so we're just looking at how pain works inside the body uh how the the body physically creates energy and things like mammalian dive reflex when you if you have a an ice cold you know this is one that you can uh you can maybe try at home uh if you have an ice cold tub like a washing bowl with uh, ice in it and you're taking your your heartbeat if your heartbeat is say 70 80 beats per minute normally when you dip your face into ice cold water it drops by like 10 20 beats per minute because we as mammals have been designed to when we go into cold water for our heart rate to drop and that happens in all mammals not just humans but uh, other ones as well so it's some really interesting science in how humans interact with the outdoors uh, and are able to do such amazing feats uh, in the mountains and beyond. I'm not a scientist in any way, Hugh, but could I challenge what you just said when you um, said that when you go into cold water, your heart rate drops? Because as a cold water swimmer who does lots of crazy cold water swim, swim challenges, I actually find that my heart rate goes up almost as if I'm drinking caffeine, my heart rate, you know, those first couple of minutes in, I can literally feel my heart rate just double. So what's more, what's accurate? Heart rate drops or heart rate rises? So this is important to do, right? To have these conversations. The science is a, is a really neat way of looking at the world because we're always looking for facts. And unlike what we sometimes see in politics, if you change your your mind on something, it doesn't mean that you flip-flopped. It means that you've learned new information and you've changed your theory or paradigm of the, the world itself. And quite often, you'll see scientists do that. We saw it during, uh, during COVID where we said we didn't think that masks would be useful um, because we didn't fully know how COVID worked. And then we've realized that masks would be the most useful thing after we learned new information. So not being a, a biologist and knowing more about astronomy and geology than I do about biology, my assumption would be that cold water shock is is definitely a thing when you first get into cold water. In fact, it can be such a thing. I have a, a, a relative, relative who died from cold water shock out in the, in the States, uh, jumping in cold water um, and getting cold water shock and then, then drowning. That can definitely be a thing and, and uh, raise your, um, your heartbeat. But over time, if you stay in the water and you are not active, so I think being active will be different to just being uh, sedentary, your heart rate will then drop after that initial shock. I, d- I definitely recommend trying it this afternoon. Just get, get a bowl of um, ice cold water, get your heart rate, or maybe uh, watch it on your, on your watch, and then dip your head in, completely non-active, and then see what happens to it. Because, yeah, you, you will see it drop, I promise. Interesting. Okay, I will do that. I did go swimming this morning, but it probably double digits probably isn't the right temperature to be doing that. I probably wouldn't see a change in it's my lovely heart rate. And warm. <laughs> yeah. So um you've been wanting to get um children on board with all the things that you've been doing. You've led classes or educational classes from the Amazon jungle. What was that like? Since I started my company Antiris uh education back in 2013. I couldn't. We couldn't get anyone to 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 fund what, what we were doing. So the idea was we would go to interesting locations and then make educational resources, do Skype in the classroom lessons. So we were doing virtual 
classrooms from Mount Etna back in 2013, before it was cool to do video calls and, and whatnot, and before it was cheap to, to do video calls as well. Since then, we've gone to a bunch of different places to do virtual classrooms, uh, including places like the Alps, uh, Iceland in between tectonic plates, um, volcanoes and the likes. And I remember being on Mount Etna is one of our first Skype classroom calls and our uh, chemist Suze was doing a call with I think someone in uh, a school in Nebraska and the volcano started going off behind us. So it was a really cool thing for, for a classroom in the middle of Nebraska, Cornhusker country to see this volcano going off and instead of, well, we just all scramble to get our cameras and take more photos and we got some lovely letters from those those kids saying how much they enjoyed the call and and whatever and how much they enjoyed volcanoes i've loved bringing the science of the outdoors to classrooms from around the world but where you can i think you know you should go and experience uh, places i think the source gets misquoted but i think it was da vinci who said you can't truly love or hate something until you experience it for yourself so You've got to go experience these places for yourself before you can find passion to to help them. So we, with the, the British Exploring Society, which is a, a wonderful organization down in London, they put on trips every year to Canada, to the Amazon, to a bunch of different places and take students to those places. So we took 50 school kids to the middle of the Amazon jungle, out to Lima, uh, and then from Lima to Cusco, and then we, it was a nine hour drive and then a 40 minute boat ride. So we were in the middle of nowhere with these 50 kids uh, who were just doing some really wonderful work, including the, the science was, we were looking at whether secondary rainforest can ever be as good and nutritious as primary rainforest. So this big area we were studying was agricultural land for a long time, a lot of cows on it and then over the last 30 years it's regenerated into second what we call secondary rainforest and we were looking at the flora there the fauna all the plants and animals to see can it ever be as good as the primary rainforest that was originally there and that time it wasn't but we saw loads of great signs to say it was on the bounce back and all these kids were were part of that science uh, which I think will stay with them forever. It definitely sounds like the kind of um, experience that was missing from my science education. <laughs> yeah, me too. So um, what was the teacher-student ratio like? Because taking 50 children into the jungle sounds like anything could go wrong any time. <laughs> Literally, yeah, because, you know, every night I'd, I'd go to to sleep in my, my hammock and there'd be a couple of Brazilian wandering spiders on my hammock and they are largely known as one of the most venomous spiders and one of the most dangerous spiders in the world there are bunches of of snakes that's you know a bite from one of those and it's not good so it wasn't a, a wasn't a, a safe place by any means but you know everyone had the training there was about 20 leaders compared to the 50 students everything from i was there as a, a mountain leader and a media expert uh, and we had uh, doctors there we had uh, other like adventure leaders there and the the team that they put in place really know what they're talking about we had arborists who would you know take them up trees to to look at what's above the canopy and the likes so it was a good experience for for everyone and it was really good for them to see how real science works like if you want to go into to science and especially field work 
then this is where like i truly believe that scientists are the last real explorers like they go to places and do things that other people wouldn't purely because they need to for the science so i've got bunches of friends who just spend time i've got one friend um george lonsdale calls himself george of the jungle but his whole science is finding pit vipers and then gluing little transponders onto them and tracking where they go that's a cool bit of science but you're really like you're in the jungle for a long time you're in in these places where it's hot and humid and the science is really tough and it's really tough to do it there so i think there's some of the best explorers those scientists how can we make that more accessible to children that's a really good question and one I don't think we've worked out quite yet. I do think that that education is one of the best ways of sorting out the world and starting with young children, they will grow up then to be educated adults. I think poverty is is above that in the the best way we sort out the world. I think once we crack poverty, we've we've cracked it all. But if we can't do that then education is is key. And you know, making sure that that everyone has the same opportunities in education is very, very difficult, because for some reason, you know, especially in the UK, we've not sorted out this industrialized way of educating kids through through from beginning to end. We feed them through. We don't treat them as individuals. We treat them as as big herds, and it's essentially a, a factory line for getting kids to the next stage which is college and then into university and then and then beyond i think we definitely don't give everyone equal opportunities in that and i don't have the answer to how to make sure that we that we do i would love to see more money in the education system i think that's going to be one of the answers because more more money in education means more teachers in education means that we can spend more time with each pupil i think we need a revolution not any evolution in in education we're trying our best to kind of muddle our way through and we have done for the last hundred years but we need to i think flip it on his head and make sure that you know things like what blue earth summit are doing for adults we can also do for kids like there's so many of these informal learning things going on at the moment i think we're doing really good in informal learning and putting on events and things that you know kids can go online and, and learn loads of stuff i think where we feel it failing them is in the formal learning side of it and you know i know so many teachers that would agree with me that we just need to sort that out because the teachers are tired the kids are tired we're not teaching them the right things um i think we just need to do a little bit better you know in in wales we're, we're doing some some good stuff in education and um in terms of climate change and all, all the rest it's devolved here in um in wales so i think that when you look after small countries on the whole i think climate change is going to be solved by small countries i think education is going to be solved by small countries when you're trying to change systems for large amounts of people and you know england's a large amount of people at 50 odd million that that's really tough but we've only got three million here in wales a lot less iceland's got you know three hundred thousand. you look at all these little countries around around the world and they're doing some really innovative and progressive things and learning by you know experiential learning where you experience things you know if you're in the Next time you're in the water with um, with your class and you say, oh, I learned this new thing about mammalian dive reflex. You know, I looked it up online and this is the stuff that we did. And, you know, I don't experience it in the in the same way that this, this guy told me, but maybe you will. So should we try that out? And they'll learn a bit of science, but it's not through the formal education system. It's through experiential learning, it's through them actually experiencing it in real life. And I think that's the way education needs to go is we need to put more students in more 
uh, situations where they learn because they need to learn that thing, not because we think that they need to learn that thing. Being a mature student at uni makes me realise that the way that uni requires me to learn and, and pass and you know get a 2-1 or a first whatever is completely different to how I've spent the last 10 years of my life out in the real world learning through experience and I kind of wish in a year when I graduate I could hand in a piece of paper that says hey I've gone through all these experiences I've learned so much I've come out the other side but by the way I didn't write a 10,000 word dissertation because... Yeah, it's, it's one of the reasons I, I loved, astro I loved uh, my astronomy degree was because it was all coursework based. It was building robots that would go to Mars. It was um, looking through telescopes to, to see what was out there in the universe. And it was writing uh, magazine articles for people who would actually read them. So all of that is much more applicable to the real world than, like you say, I did write a 20,000 word dissertation on superstring theory but that was just as part of part of the bigger picture. So I was having a flick through your Instagram this morning and you've got some pretty beautiful photos on there. When did photography kind of come into your come into your career? It was when I realized that public speaking wasn't the only way to tell good stories that if we want to go to nice places and and tell nice stories then it has to be a mixture of all different things so whether that's photography filmmaking virtual classrooms from the field public speaking when you when you get home or when you go to an event all of that adds to the bigger picture and i spent my my early years like learning public speaking, studying everything from opera to music to comedy to just to make sure that my public speaking was was okay. And then realized that I wasn't proficient in photography or filmmaking. So I kind of made it my mission really to to start doing more of that so that I could tell good stories through photos and film. Because you can't always take a group of kids to the Amazon jungle. You have to be able to tell that story from further afield. And you know, I think the, the climate movement in general, the sustainability and, and earth movement have really benefited from photography and filmmaking from, you know, all the creative people out there. And we wouldn't be able to tell the stories from around the world unless we had those people. So when, when people say to me, I want my kid to, to learn more about climate change, they want to do something, you know, what sciences should they study? I often say, well, do they like science? Because if they don't, then why don't they do art or poetry or, you know, English language or, you know, other languages? Because you don't have to, if you want to be part of the climate movement, you don't have to study the science. We've got loads of great scientists and we do need more. However, we need creatives to start spreading our message. We need people, if you want to be part of the climate movement, then you can study business or events put on events like Blue Earth Summit. That's the kind of, we need everyone doing little bits at a time and whatever they're passionate about. And I, I happen to be passionate about photography and, and filmmaking. If they're passionate about that, then you can apply those tools that you have and the passion that you have to the climate movement. It's really nice to hear that you appreciate that everybody in that cycle, everybody in that chain has value. I honestly think that science has failed over the last you know, people started talking about climate change in the late 1800s. It's not a new thing. Carl Sagan was talking about it in the in the 80s and made a great speech on um, in the Senate. And I really feel I've been doing this now, climate change communications. I was a, a, a climate change advocate for the British Council in Cardiff back in 2007-ish. So I started back then talking about climate change and, and 
trying to educate people on on it and the likes. In the last 15 years, I've seen such a massive movement in how we talk about climate change, the public perception of climate change. And I think where scientists have failed, and I, I include me in this, is we often think that the data will speak for itself and we find academics are like this as well that the you know i'll show someone the data and they'll go they'll change their mind and their life will be changed by the data and that's not the case data needs to be contextualized and explained in a way that everyone gets it so people who do marketing branding and all the rest are just brilliant at that so we should be working as scientists with people who do marketing to really get things out there and, and change people's minds about, you know, whether it's the oil industry or whether it's plastics or whatever else. The people who change minds are going to use the science in a good way, in a good strategic way, and that's going to be marketing and branding. Would you have any advice then for like budding scientists on their journey of doing like masters in research or thinking about doing PhDs? We've come a long way in, in how we do science communication and communicating science. There's a lot of good tutorials out there. There's a lot of good uh, master's degrees. There's a lot of good workshops. And some some universities now have undergrad courses. I used to teach one at University of South Wales, uh, an undergrad course on science communication where one module, two hours a week, you'd learn how to communicate science with the public, how to break down really complicated science in a way that the audience will not only understand, but enjoy taking on board. And I think seeking out those workshops, those events, going to more science events, coming to things like Blue Earth Summit, it's going to be really important because if you if you want to communicate science well, you need to see how other other people do it, and you need to learn what you think is good science communication. So, getting there from an undergrad level, from when you start doing your course, or you know if you are doing science but not at university, maybe you're doing it as part of an apprenticeship, or maybe you're doing it alongside your job. Maybe you're doing your job and then you're doing science on the side. Whatever it might be. Knowing that science that's not communicated is science not finished is a really important thing. Just doing the science and finishing it and putting a paper out and thinking that it's, it's gone off to nature now, I'm, I've done my job. That's not the end of it. If you don't communicate your science, then it's not finished. Thinking in the world like a scientist, I think, is a really good way of, of looking at the world because sometimes I think science is open and honest for the most part. Like There's definitely some things where scientists have been working on something for 40 years of their lives and they really want that thing to work because otherwise the 40 years of their life is gone but for the most part you know thinking about things like a scientist is good because uh, again I learned this from from someone else I think it was Chris Hayes on MSNBC he was saying that there's two ways of looking at the world one is like a lawyer where you've got your end goal in mind you've got what you think already there and it's already formed and you try and find all your evidence and all your observations then will we'll back that up or you can think like a scientist and you find out all your do all your experimentation and and research things and then you form your conclusion at the end of that and you find a lot of people in the world do think like, like that lawyer like they'll make a judgment whether that's politically based or science based or or whatever maybe it's about their football team that my football team is the best football team in the world. And then you say, and then they'll go and try and find evidence to back up that assumption. Whereas, you know, if they looked at the actual evidence before they made the conclusion, they'd probably find that their football team isn't the best football team in the world. So I think we need more transparency. People need to trust experts more. 
And I think that's why it's so important for scientists to be transparent and honest because we're living in a world at the moment where experts aren't as trusted as they used to be. And we need to get back to that. Do you think then that good science is where we do what you just said? We do lots of research and then we come to a conclusion. But actually, bad science or science that's manipulated is where they have a conclusion in mind and they just try and find the numbers that fit the conclusion to fit the narrative that they want to. It definitely uh, happens and you know over the last just since I've done I've been in my my career there's a, been a few of those and it really hurts public trust in science when media gets it wrong. I quite often write to my local papers and say this is wrong, please can you change it? Because it needs to be right. There was a bit of research came out about phosphates on Venus and how that might be a, an indicator for signs of life on, on the planet. And my local paper wrote, signs of life found on Venus or life found on Venus. And I was like, no, 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 please change this. It's not, it's not correct. And that might seem like a little thing, but all those little things build up and it means that the public has a mistrust of science and if people have a mistrust of science even if it's about signs of life on on venus i think it's a slippery slope to start saying that well what about these vaccines why why should i take a vaccine if if you're going to lie about this then maybe you're lying about about that knowing how science works and being scientifically literate is good for everyone it brings a more progressive culture it means that we can start for climate change we can start looking at the evidence and saying these are the steps we need to make and we don't let politics and other stuff get in the way but you know there is bad faith science and i think it undercuts a lot of faith in in experts um but also the media has a, a part to play as well you know saying that it's not always the scientists it's the media as well and everyone else plays a part when the large hadron collider in in cern in switzerland kicked up there was a lot of it's going to create a black hole and it's going to suck in everything around Switzerland and, and the Alps and maybe the, the rest of Europe. And yeah, that's not true. And we, we spent a bit of time fighting that. Again, it doesn't seem like it's, it's that much. But then once you scale that up to other things like nuclear fusion, for example, I've gone through a lot of, I'm a bit of an ad advocate for, for nuclear power. It's the safest form of energy creation that we currently have next to I think solar, I think wind might have more deaths per year than nuclear, but we'll have to look that up. But yeah, well, people who died from from Chernobyl, 49, I think, on the day and a few hundred afterwards from lingering things. No one died in Fukushima. So deaths per year from nuclear is almost zero. Deaths per year from air pollution and burning fossil fuels is 8 million. When we're thinking about what's a safe kind of energy, thinking like a scientist and taking those numbers and not being swayed by what we read in books and that nuclear is bad and, and all the rest of it, it means that we can actively find the facts for ourselves and not be, our views can't be changed by other people. If I was reading something in the newspaper and I thought, huh, okay, I want to find out if the science behind this is true, or I want to find out more about this. And I, and I type it into Google, but what initially comes up is kind of a, a mismatch of more stuff that's just kind of been rewritten by journalists. And I and so I think, okay, I'll go to the source, I'll research a paper, but I read the paper and I just think, okay, this is just full of scientific jargon that I just don't understand how to decipher. What do I do then? So this is a, a really interesting one. So say that you read in a in a tabloid, humans didn't cause climate change. 
So you read this in a, in a tabloid and it's not good to go with it. What then would you put into Google uh, to to research if that's true? What, what would be the, st- the the thing you type into the search bar? Well, I I would just take the title and probably put a question mark next to it. I'll put what or what or why or is this? Yeah, yeah. I I fall into a category of people who would probably who would probably write. <laughs> so pretty embarrassing, embarrassing things into Google if I wasn't sure about something. <laughs> so th- this is a it's, it's a big thing. I run training for for outdoor companies and and other people on on literally how to Google things, right? So it's a really important thing. So you, this is one that that listeners can do whilst listening to this podcast as well. Just type in, say you read that article and you say it says humans did not cause climate change, and that was the the banner. If you type that into Google, humans did not cause climate change. When, you, when you're faced with then, especially on the, the front page of, uh, of Google, will be articles related to humans did not cause climate change. When you're creating there's a positive bias towards the thing that you've just Googled. So if you're looking for it, it's why we end up in echo chambers. It's why people fall down rabbit holes. And then on the other side, you could put humans did not cause climate, uh, did cause climate change and fall into that echo chamber. So something to to think about a lot is what am I putting into Google? How am I researching it? And is it giving me positive bias either way? So something better to put in might be something like, what are the leading causes of climate change? And it's not exactly what you've just read in the the paper, but it'll give you a more holistic view of things you're going for. Another thing is to, to check sources. Where are the sources coming from? So if you are reading a tabloid, I would suggest those are probably not the best sources to get your science from. Some newspapers are backed up. If they give you sources in the article, that's great. You can go and check those people, are, those sources are really real. But also, are other people saying the same thing? So if you read an article that says, new science finds that humans didn't cause climate change, if you type that in and no one else, no other paper has reported on it, then that's kind of suspicious. You want three or four different papers reporting on the same thing or from like a, an online article and then a podcast and then a few other places. And then the other one then, the last one is having a trusted source. So I've got a, a list of people on Twitter that are part of you know, the conference of parties or maybe they, they write the reports for the IPCC, uh, the IPCC or maybe they are just trusted scientists that I, I've known for a long time. Having people that you you really trust the opinion of and be able to go to them and ask questions or just see what they're talking about, that's really, really important. I've got a WhatsApp group of scientists on my on my phone, a bunch of my friends, and when new technology comes out, if they're not talking about it on there, I just ignore it. Because if it's really big and it's a really it's a shift in in science, all my science friends will be talking about it. So there's just a few ways you can kind of think about it check what sources there are check multiple people are talking about it and try and check your positive bias at the door when googling things i'm asking all the guests that i'm interviewing on the pod um what their blue thread is and what ties them to their cause or purpose what would yours be i think this is a really important question and one that i actually go out of my way to ask people quite a lot is why do you do what you do if you're a climate change advocate or if you're a scientist within the field or whatever you do you know, I'm an environmental campaigner. Why are we trying to save the planet? And it's something that I, I recommend everyone think about because it's really difficult to answer. Like, what is the actual point of us? And what are we trying to save, right? Because you could say that we're trying to save lives. That's a really good one. 
you could say we're trying to save nature. It's just a difficult question to answer because I really want to write um, a talk which is called Why I Don't Care About Climate Change, which from an astronomical point of view, like we are but a blip in the Earth's history and the, the Earth will live on. It doesn't care about us. The climate will, will recover. It'll do something else in the future. It's been hotter in the past. It's been colder in the past. And it'll be hotter and colder in the future. It doesn't really care that much. So what are we trying to do and why are we trying to do it? So my blue thread, I think, and the reason I come to the summit and the reason I do what I do is I just think a little bit of empathy and a little bit of guilt are both in there. I'm from a, a place in, in the world, in the South Wales Valleys, that produce a lot of coal over the, the years. Largely, we didn't benefit from that coal. Um, at the last count, £5 trillion was moved out of our country and went elsewhere. I'll let you guess where that was. The, a lot of the carbon that's in the atmosphere is from South Wales coal. So we do have an intrinsic tie to climate change in that way. We've had the longest run of industrialization in the world. We were the first industrial uh, revolution in, in the UK, and we just pumped a, a lot of it out. Luckily, we stopped, like for portions um, this and last year, Wales didn't use any coal at all, which is good. We use a lot of natural gas, but we've we've pivoted from coal already. So we're not the biggest emitters uh, at all, but we all we can all hold two things in our mind at once. That yes, I feel guilty, and for what I continue to do, the system that I work within, the flights that I take, and the the diesel van that I drive, I can still hold that in my heart and say that I am um, contributing to this and I can still work towards a better system for the future. And I think that's the, the point we need to make. Like my blue thread is going to be, I am part of this system. I'm using it to live because we all have to, but I can still empathize with future generations that need to have a better, cleaner future. And I think that's, that's where I am. That's, Ultimately, none of it matters because we are a speck in the universe. But if we want a sustainable planet to live on for our, I don't even have kids, but for my friends' kids my and the future generations, I think we need to just, and do you know what? It's going to be a better way of living. Electric cars, solar panels, clean atmosphere is just better. It's cheaper, it's better, and it's going to be great. Blue Earth Summit is happening from the 11th to the 13th of October 2022 in the great city of Bristol. We believe in the power of the outdoors to improve our health and further establish purpose-led business. Register your interest at blueearthsummit.com.